and welcome to the All Too Well podcast. I'm your host, Erica Huss. I'm a wellness entrepreneur, a wellness expert, and your wellness whisperer here to make your journey towards better health just a little more comfortable and a little less cringy. And today I'm very excited to share a conversation I had with Laura Katz, who is the founder of a brand new company called Helena. It's a new brand. It's actually the first company to bring human proteins to food. Uh, I know that sounds terrifying to some of you and food as food science sounds like a scary concept to a lot of people because you associate it with Frankenfood and Cheetos, but I swear there is a place for food science and it all is under the header of food as medicine. And as far as I'm concerned, Laura Katz is leading that fray. Uh, They have done a tremendous amount of work creating this company and this brand. It is, there's a lot of science involved in what we're talking about, but the goal here is to make it easy to understand so you can really understand what Laura and Helena are doing to kind of address all of our overall wellness and raise it up to the next level. There is a tremendous amount of benefit that can be found in the right type of food science. And by that, I do not mean Cheetos, but we talk about that too. Uh, Laura actually was the youngest ever adjunct professor in food science and technology at NYU, which is amazing. And she, for her very young years, has had an absolutely tremendous career. And uh, she's really bringing years of passion and expertise to this conversation. So I encourage you to listen and really embrace what this is all about. Um, Little caveat on the sound quality. Unfortunately, um, it's not the greatest sound quality for either of us. Uh, We had some microphone issues that day. It does not affect the content at all. So I do encourage you to, um, you know, just kind of get over it and, and enjoy the episode. So here's my chat with Laura Katz. So we can just jump in. I will say officially welcome to Laura Katz. Uh, You are the founder of Helena, among other amazing credentials, which I'd love to dive into. Hello. (laughs) Erica, thanks so much for having me. Uh, It's a pleasure to chat. And we did have a chance to discuss a little bit about what you are doing with this incredibly fascinating and very necessary concept. Um, so I know there's a lot to tackle in a short period of time, and I would love to dive in. Um, first and foremost, tell us what Helena is, just kind of broad strokes, and then I would love to get a little bit into your background and kind of how you got here before we, we really kind of dig into the, the meat and potatoes of it. Helena is a biotech company based here in New York City. And we've created a platform to replicate bioactive human proteins that can be found in breast milk, but in our bodies, in our blood. And we're bringing them to the world of nutrition for the first time to help support you know, healthy processes from early life to end of life, where these proteins can be really value add to our health and our overall nutritional status. Yeah, it sounds it sounds very important and complex and complicated. So I'm glad you are here to break it down for us. Um, and I know that you have had quite a fascinating and probably kind of fun journey to get here. Um, you, you began your career as a food scientist and developed food products for all sorts of very interesting businesses. Um, I'm sure there are some <laughs> some great stories from the lab <laughs> in there. But how did you? How, like what, what is your, your background and how did you start and, and then arrive to where you are with Helena? 
I'll start early days because I decided that I wanted to be a food scientist when I was maybe 10 years old, which is a very specific career trajectory to put yourself on from a young age. But I knew that it was my purpose in life to feed people. And I would say that, which very profound for a 10 year old, but that was the path that I took. And I drew a lot of influence from a lot of the great chefs on the Food Network, but I was really impacted by Alton Brown and a lot of his work in the world of where food meets science. And I, I thought it was fascinating. And I always really understood how food could connect people and make people feel a certain way. And that was something that I wanted to get involved with. Uh, so I went along this path. I knew that I was going to go to college to study food science. And that's what I did. And I came to New York City for grad school in food and food studies at NYU. And very quickly after that, I started developing food products. So worked in mostly startups to help these companies figure out how do I go from idea to shelf and what are all the technical pieces that come with creating something brand new from your brain and making it into a product that thousands or millions of people can eat. So that was how I started my career. And I also started teaching food science at NYU. So I was their youngest professor at the time, teaching undergraduate and graduate students about food science, getting really excited about all these concepts uh, with my students that were actually more kind of nutrition focused in their degrees, but was able to bring them into this world of how science meets our food and, and what we what we do to make it the way it is. So that was how everything started for me. So were you more science minded as a kid or was it, did you come from the other side of it? Because uh, I know, you know, for myself, like I was super into food and you know, more food as fuel and I guess the nutrition piece of it from a young age, because I was, you know, I was a performer, I was a ballerina. And so it was always like that connection of, you know, what I'm eating to fuel my body. But the science piece of it sort of eluded me. I was definitely not what you would call a science brain person. Um, so where, where, how did it break down for you? That's a good question, actually, because I think I saw food from a lot of different angles, which is really unique to understand as a young person, but I also was a dancer growing up, um, did ballet, but I always had flat feet and that was challenging, but did all kinds of disciplines. And I understood food in the context of nutrition. My mom has type one diabetes and was diagnosed when I was a child. And so that really impacted how our family ate and saw food as fuel, food as nutrition, but also food as an impact to your immune system, mm. where type 1 diabetes is an autoimmune condition and your health is really determined by the types of food you do and don't eat. And when you get sick, when you have type 1 diabetes, I always knew if I got a cold for a couple of days, my mom would have it for a month and it was much more serious. And so I always really knew the connection between what we ate and how it impacted our body, but that there are a lot of ways to go about creating that food to deliver it in different ways to our body and also what that means for culture. And I think that was a, an area that still I'm really passionate about, but one of the reasons why I came to NYU for the food studies program is 
looking at food, not just through the lens of nutrition, not just through the lens of the shelf life or, you know, the things we care about in food science, the formulation, but also looking at it through the lens of how it impacts who we are as people, our culture, and, and the meaning of, of what food does in the relationships we have to other people. Yeah, that's really interesting. And that that totally makes sense that you kind of witnessed from a very young age the impact and how you can modulate and really have a direct impact on your health just based on what you're putting into your body. Um, and it's funny, I'm, I'm thinking as you're talking about this this whole notion of food science, that phrase I think can be very potentially off-putting and triggering to people because we think of it as, you know, certainly those of us that are more focused on health and wellness on a regular basis, the idea of food being whole and it should always come from the ground and from a plant and from, you know, its original source and the concept of anything being made in a lab automatically feels like, oh, that's going to be Franken food and it's packaged and it's weird and it's not good for me. And But the reality is it's not quite that binary. There's certainly this whole world of food that or food products that are engineered, but, you know, for the good and, you know, using your powers for good as opposed to for like Doritos and Cheetos evil. Not that they're evil all the time. There's certainly a place for them. Um, but anyway, so it's, it's just an interesting idea. So, yeah. So let's, let's, let's talk about it. I, you know, this is like my core thesis of, of how I think about food. And I will say Doritos are a brilliant invention. Don't eat them all the time, but when you can, you know, here and there. You should celebrate um, the miracle of science, right? Celebrate the miracle of science. You know, you look at, I think in the landscape of what has happened in food in the last 150 years or so, these technologies that we don't think about as technologies anymore, but were like refrigeration and mm -hmm the ability to can a food product, like can beans or can whatever, things that are, you know, pretty healthy and good for us to eat that improve access to food, that improve distribution, that help to create the modern food system that we have today. At the time that they were introduced to, you know, regular people, these were like really massive technologies in tools that we use to process and preserve food. Now, you know, we've taken this to a much more technical level in today's scientific community where we have such advanced tools, but food processing is overall a good thing. It's created a safe food supply and available food supply. It's just a matter of, to your point, how we use it. And that was really how I started Helena. I saw so much innovation go into all dairy and all meat products really for the purpose of making these alternatives taste like the real thing and have the texture like the real thing. And I think there is a place for that type of innovation, but what I've always set out to do in, in food was make this really big impact and hopefully on people's health. And I thought, well, if we have all of the tools and technology of our modern food system and our modern scientific community, can't we channel that to making our foods healthier? to making components of our food that are going to advance health and use food as medicine, as opposed to just looking at food as something that needs to taste really, really good, really quickly. Mm. And that was the impetus for me to start Helena. Mm. Yeah. Okay. So then let's, let's, let's talk about it. So what, what did you see and what was the, what was the, you know, for lack of a better phrase, it's overused, but like, what was the white space that you saw and the solution that you, that you, landed on? I had spent a lot of time myself in all 
dairy and alt meat. I think partially because I myself am a vegetarian. I haven't eaten meat in over 15 years and I gravitated towards these types of startups. And I'll never forget. Just interrupt to ask, are you a vegetarian for health reasons or environmental? Like what are, what's your sort of rationale around it? I'm always curious why, what, what people's I'll tell you how it started and where it's gone because those are two different things. Totally. I will never forget in 2007, so that's when I started, um, I read an article in Gourmet Magazine, which doesn't exist anymore, but it was a wonderful Condé Nast publication. That was a great publication. It was my favorite magazine. And the article, you can find it online. It's still available in their archives. 2007, they wrote about like chicken farming and what chickens go through. And I was a teenager at the time and highly influential. And I was like, I'm never going to eat chicken again. I can't believe I had never been exposed to that. I just couldn't believe that this was how chickens were treated and what mass farming looked like, you know, for animals. And so that was where it started. And as I started to learn more, I think it's a hybrid of animal cruelty and just how we treat animals through the process, which I think especially with the kind of industrialization of it, it's quite cruel. And there's an environmental piece to this as well. Of course, you know, animals are a huge part of our um, ecological, like our our whole footprint. And so that for me has become more important over time as I've learned about it. And I would say as I've stopped eating meat, I haven't missed it. I don't need to eat meat. There are so many other things I can eat. And I see my diet as what I can eat, not what I can't. Uh, So that was where it started for myself. And I was so excited to see so many years into being a vegetarian that, you know, 2013, 14, 15, we started to see some real interesting innovation in the space. But when I got into it, I realized that the focus is really taste. Because the goal of a lot of these businesses, which I think is a great goal, but it's how do we convert meat eaters to these alternative products? And at the same time, I was listening to a podcast about the black market for breast milk and how parents, but bodybuilders and cancer patients and skiers and all of these people from different walks of life are trying to get breast milk from strangers on the internet and spending so much money to do that. And I thought, well, okay, if we can make a burger bleed, an alternative burger, can we not channel some of this type of technology into replicating what makes breast milk so nutritionally complete? And if we can do that and accomplish the replica of these nutrients from breast milk, can we advance nutrition and bring these technologies to what I believe is the most important direction we need to go as a food industry? And that was where it all got started for Helena. That's amazing. Um, I'm, I was laughing because I had a very similar experience with, I went off of chicken very specifically because of 
watching one documentary. I don't remember which one it was because I watched a few at the same time. It might have been Food Inc. Yeah. Um, but it was the same thing. It was like seeing the evidence of the of the factory farming and, and you know the sort of big chicken industry. And I do eat a little bit of meat now and then, um, but I haven't had I haven't touched bird since then because of that very thing. Yeah. Like I, yeah. Anyway, um, so okay, so you had this kind of light bulb moment because you're hearing about this major demand. Can you talk a little bit about because I think for a lot of people, they don't understand, like, well, why are athletes trying to get breast milk? So can you talk about what, what that actually involves and then why it became so important? And it's obviously, it's not just something that we need to think about for babies. Absolutely. We see breast milk as nutrition. So it's got like calories, vitamins, minerals, those types of things. But it has this whole class of nutrients called bioactives. Bioactives means that these nutrients do more for our physiology than just provide energy. They help to modulate or kind of regulate our immune system. They help to build and support our gut health. They advance cognition. They do things that, you know, provide more to our body. And there are very few sources of bioactive proteins specifically. Bioactive proteins are most commonly found in dairy and in cows and cow's milk. They have all of these bioactive proteins, but in very small quantities and, you know, a fraction of a percent of the entire milk. But in breast milk, they're in very high quantities because they're there to help build out all of baby system, not just provide energy for baby to grow, you know, gain weight and get taller, but to also build out the gut for the first time, build the immune system for the first time. And athletes really like these proteins because they help with muscle development and regeneration after a workout. Cancer patients, as you would imagine, like them for all of the protective things they can do for our body. And so I thought, well, why, why have we not replicated these proteins Cow's milk is a poor source, and the dairy industry does today filter out the bioactive proteins from cow's milk, but because they're found in such low concentrations, there's just a very limited global supply of these proteins, and they're incredibly expensive, so they're not quite accessible to the mass market of people who may want to access them. Okay, so that's that. That's the, the black market piece. Um, yeah. And so then is the ether or, or is the sort of the idea for, for creating or for sort of hacking into this, you know, to, to recreate it in this kind of alt segment, is it focused on the infants who are not able to get it because either socioeconomic circumstances or health circumstances of the mother, or is it focused on I mean, you've said kind of all life stages, but is there one market in particular that you feel is the one that is the target? We right now are establishing all of our safety and functional parameters in adults first. Uh, and we will eventually bring this into infants, but to bring these human proteins to food for the first time, we wanted to ensure that we could bring all of the functional value of the proteins into the adults before the babies. So we are starting in adult nutrition as a business where there are a couple of very specific verticals we believe this will resonate with. Um, I would say athletes, 
women and women's health. And we can talk about why and specifically care of the elderly and, you know, really, uh, you know, advanced nutrition for those populations where the immune system and the entire kind of functionality of the body is called a second infancy as we age, because there's a lot of similarities between the immune system of an aging person and one of an infant. And then over time, it's our goal to bring this to infant nutrition as well. Mm-hmm. Um, so is the product on the market at this point? Almost, but not yet. <laughs> so our first protein that we've made, it's called human lactoferrin. Lactoferrin is seen as like the holy grail of bioactive proteins. You know, there's many of them, but it's what's dominantly found in breast milk. And it's actually found in colostrum in really high quantities. And we have gone through extensive testing uh, with all of the commercial, you know, manufacturing scale production runs that we've done. Uh, We're finishing up a clinical study right now in healthy adult population. And once we get that data, we'll start to launch this into the market. So we're getting very close uh, and we're getting all of the final pieces ready to get this to consumers. And what is the actual format? What's the the delivery method? Our protein is a high value, low inclusion protein. So we like to compare it to any type of micronutrient you might add to food like vitamin C or different, you know, vitamins and minerals where the amount is small because you don't need a high dose for this to have an impact. So our protein right now, as we make it, um, comes out in like a liquid concentrated form and we can spray dry that into a powder. So it kind of just looks like a protein powder that you add a small amount into food products, or we can sell it as a liquid. We right now are developing several different types of product applications. So we take our protein and we blend it into a drink mix, for example, or into gummies or into bars. We've tried all kinds of things and it's really fun because I get to taste all of them. Mm-hmm. Um, and our protein doesn't really have much of a taste. It's actually quite flavorless, but it's fun to think about, okay, how can we combine this with probiotics or other things that could be synergistic and how it can, you know, advance our health and make these like super formulations. Uh, so that's some of the stuff we do as well. Mm-hmm. So, um, is this, and maybe this is an obvious question and maybe it just needs to be over-explained, but this is not the same as what would be considered dietary protein, right? This is not like, you know, if I'm looking to get 30 grams upon 30 minutes of rising and whatever the, you know, sort of the new conventional wisdom is, um, this is not that. This is not about getting actual dietary protein for muscle tone and, and all of that, in addition, obviously, to all the, the better, larger benefits that it's providing. Exactly. You're exactly right. This is a small, like a low inclusion protein. They're called proteins because that's the structure of them, but they don't function in the diet as a like nutritive source of protein. So Mm -hmm. you really want a small amount of them and you can add them to complement proteins like large inclusion proteins. But this first protein that we've made lactoferrin is actually very interesting because it complements well with a lot of other nutrients. It's an iron binding protein. And one of the reasons it's so 
incredible. And what it does is it really binds to iron well. So when we combine this with an iron supplement, for example, so ferrous sulfate is very common iron supplement, it could actually help our body bring that iron to where it needs to go in the body. So mm. iron doesn't accumulate in certain places or, you know, not show up in places where it needs to go. And that seems very technical and nuanced, but it has a really big impact on our health, especially if our neurons don't have enough iron, lactoferrin can pass through the blood-brain barrier and ensure it's bringing and delivering iron to these neurons. So the complement that it could add to other nutrients is really interesting and something we're starting to explore, but complementing it with other, you know, big inclusion proteins, a pea protein, a whatever it might look like is also something that I think is really an interesting use case. Mm-hmm. Um, I have so many questions and I'm not sure what order to ask them in, but, um, you mentioned colostrum just a little bit ago yes. and, uh, I, I don't know how many people are totally familiar with it. I did an interview with the founder of a colostrum company, uh, a year or so ago. Um, and that was like a colostrum supplement that is recommended for immune support and sort of repairing the gut lining. It was actually recommended to me. I took a recent trip to Peru and as part of my kind of like overall, you know, vaccine and nutrition protocol, they were recommending like, oh, you should bring that even if you don't eat street food, but it's definitely beneficial and all of that, which honestly didn't help at all because I still got very sick. But (laughs) um, what is the difference between colostrum and this? Because obviously they're related but I know that there's so colostrum in the market is taken from cows. Colostrum is the first like milk type substance mom produces after giving birth. And colostrum, at least in humans, is produced for a, a day to a couple days before it transitions into breast milk. Uh, I a cow is producing colostrum, but probably not too dissimilar in the length of time before they start to produce milk. So colostrum is really biologically designed to be providing the first line of defense for infants. So the colostrum on the market today is taken from cows. Uh, That's the only available source. And it has a lot of these bioactives in it. The colostrum taken from cows designed for cows is more, you know, custom designed for what the cow needs as opposed to what the human needs. Uh, But in breast milk and, you know, human colostrum, a majority of that bioactive protein is lactoferrin. So while these mixed, you know, these are biological fluids and they're quite complex in their, you know, construction, some of the main components are bioactive proteins. So when we bring our lactoferrin to market, you know, we are making this in a, in a different way. We don't take this from humans. We don't take it from cows. We, biomanufacture or lactoferrins, very similarly to how human insulin is manufactured, is how our lactoferrin is is made. And the difference between a colostrum and market and Helena's human lactoferrin is our product is identical and an identical replica of what's found in our body. So we are more, you know, designed to absorb and use a humanized protein as opposed to a cow's milk protein. Let's talk about how it's made. We start with yeast, which is an organism we've been using to manufacture food for centuries. We used yeast to make beer. We use yeast to make bread. But now with 
really modern genetic tools, we can train yeast or engineer yeast to become little cell factories that when we ferment them, instead of making alcohol or making bread, they make human proteins. So we essentially at the core take yeast and teach them to be human. And we take these humanized yeast cells, we put them into large fermentation tanks, we feed our yeast all the food they need to grow and ferment. And in that fermentation, they then make these human proteins. So we've got this big kind of bath of yeast cells and human protein and all the food that the yeast has been eating. And then we filter out the human protein. So we create something that is really highly pure, over 98% pure human protein. And we tested so many different ways to confirm that all of the structure and the sequence and the functionality is identical to human. Uh, so this process, while it sounds complex, is actually one that the pharmaceutical industry has been using for decades to make novel drugs and therapies, including human insulin. That's made through a fermentation process. So we really borrowed this pharma-like process and thought, how do we adapt this to food? And how can we take this idea of making these, you know, insulin is it? human protein, uh, but make the ones that we know will be important nutrients. So that's what our process looks like. So, and again, uh, forgive me if this is a dumb question, but I mean, when you say when, when we're making, whether it's insulin that is, you know, that is a human com uh, compound or, or the lactoferrin human protein, um, and maybe you just said this and I, I missed it, but is, is there you know, like when you're making bread, you have a starter, right? Is there, mm -hmm. is there some component that is starting with a human um, ingredient or is it completely synthesized and therefore is it able to like, can we call it human when it's actually the alternative? Does that, does that question make Great sense? Great question. Nothing comes from humans. The sequence, the DNA sequence for this protein we get from the cloud and we create that sequence and put that DNA sequence into a yeast cell. So we don't get anything from humans. We then feed yeast, you know, basically a multivitamin. That's what they eat to grow and to start to produce this protein, but nothing is taken from humans. And it, it's tricky, right? Because there is a rhetoric around let ingredients and if I can't pronounce it, I shouldn't eat it mm -hmm. in this really unscientific, but you know, way a lot of people think. And we want to figure out how we can strip that back or at least kind of come around that to show that the best food we believe that will advance our health needs to be scientific and needs to be clinically backed, which is something we do as a business that's pretty unique in the food landscape and needs to be well studied. And all of this should lead to better health outcomes and overall people feeling healthier, which is what we hope mm -hmm. is we just want people to feel healthier, live longer for health for with better health over time and use these proteins as a tool to get there. So when you say feel healthier, I mean, that that's kind of, you know, that's where it becomes oftentimes a slippery slope when you're in the business of, you know, creating products for supplementation and all that, because oftentimes it's, it's a loading process, right? It's not something that you feel immediately. It's something that you sort of notice 
you know, sort of very slowly building over time. So what would you say is that timeline for people? I know having been in like the adaptogens business, for example, we would say it's like three to four weeks before you kind of maybe pay close attention and notice that your brain fog has kind of lifted or you're sleeping a little bit better. And we would say often it's more when you stop taking them that you really notice the difference than when, you know, than when you're actually using it. So what would you say people should look for when they are using the product and about after how long? We are currently concluding our clinical study where we have the participants eating, it's actually drinking. It's a little drink mix that we um, have created and they add it to water that contains our lactoferrin. We studied these participants over four weeks and then we have a four-week washout period. So a period where they're not consuming the product for four weeks. And throughout the study, we take different markers, blood markers. We, We are collecting stool samples, saliva samples. So we can, you know, both document how do you feel, but also like how is this reflected in all of the biological markers? And until we get that data back, I don't know how well I can comment on it, but I can say that through other studies we've seen, the impact is pretty immediate. And so I think once we get that clinical data, we'll be able to make more of a recommendation to people who will be consuming this on what that would look like in terms of how it will impact how you feel. And I think it's just, you bring up a really interesting point because instant gratification is something that we all seek and that's not how health works. Hmm. Yeah. I mean, that's a hundred percent true. And I think that with the rare exception of, you know, okay, so you take ibuprofen and your headache goes away. Um, but you know, let's not forget that it also causes a host of other issues. Yeah. 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 Um, but oftentimes the things that are really best for us in terms of preventative health and in terms of long-term benefit and longevity, it's micro, it's micro results, it's micro progress. Uh, and I think the goal is, you know, not feeling bad and, and thinking back on when's the last time you felt bad. Um, and that should be more of the marker of, you know, the fact that you're feeling good than feeling some sort of strangely uh, instantaneous, you know, euphoria of, you know, based on what you've been taking. I think about it as kind of like having a 401k or a retirement account. You don't really understand what that means today when you're putting money in it, but in 30 or 40 years from now, when you go to tap into that, it's really going to help. And it's really hard to take a long-term view when you don't fully see what that means today. And you do things like, you know, the eating healthy and exercising and all of those things that we're told are supposed to help us and may not have like instant gratification, but will long-term be really beneficial. And we're really at the precipice with lactoferrin of studying that and, There are a few longer-term studies that have been done with this protein, but we hope over time as the company grows and we get out of this like very early-stage startup mode that we can do um, some longer-term studies and really understand the the impact. And we're actually designing a clinical study in infants right now that we hope to run eventually where we can be, you know, studying the infants over the course of a year, but then even longer have kind of check-in points over time because I think that type of data will start to become invaluable with how we evaluate, honestly, any new nutrient, not just Helena's lactoferrin mm-hmm. or other future bioactive proteins, but 
other nutrients that we deem to be very important uh, that are not well studied. Because right now, we, you know, we all know the vitamins and minerals that exist, but these are things that, you know, we've really understood over the last hundred years, but what's the next hundred years of nutrients and what does that look like? Yeah. That's an interesting question. Um, where does the name come from? So Helena is my great grandmother. It's also, I'm named after her. It's my middle name is Helena, but she immigrated to Canada where I'm from originally at the turn of the century. And she, you know, was escaping, um, anti-Semitism, but also poverty and came to Canada for a better life. And she wrote a letter to my uncle about her whole journey and how all she wanted to do was build a family and to see her kids have a better life than her. And to me, that sentiment and also somebody who could never imagine you know, where women are today and all the things that we have, even though, you know, there's a long way to go for, you know, ad advancing women, but just to dedicate it to her was important to me. And then, you know, the other kind of fun piece of her story is she, well, this is not so fun. She was widowed later in life, but what was really interesting for her at that moment was she took over the family business and she was an older woman in like the 1950s or 60s running a hardware store, which for so many reasons is just unusual and the hardware store still exists today and she became like a, a cool entrepreneur so I was like this there's no better to, to name the, the company after than Helena I love that that's so cute and the, the hardware store is, it, is in Canada is in Canada it's no longer owned by my family but it still exists yeah I love that um I was just thinking, I, this just popped into my head, but um, there was like a thing on Instagram recently that I thought was hilarious. And it was like, it was, you know, one of those little memes about your drag name is the name of your great grandmother uh, and the last, uh, the last dessert you ate. And so mine was, mine was Ada Brownie, which I actually thought was kind of cool. That's, that's like a, a great drag name. That's a good name. <laughs> mine would be Helena Cookie. So... <laughs> That's also, I would take that name. Yeah. Yeah, totally. <laughs> I love it. And also I read that um, your dog has a very cute name. Yes. Fontina Prosciutto. She is an Italian <laughs> water dog. So I was like, an Italian dog needs an Italian name. And the For theme sure. of my whole life is food always. Uh, not just in the context of Helena. It's really the only thing I ever think about. Because I like to eat food, I like to cook, and so she needed a food name. How do people kind of follow your progress so that they know when this is actually something that's available to them? What's the best way to connect with you or just to kind of watch things unfold? We are building out our social platforms right now, but you can connect with us on LinkedIn. You can send me an email directly. I talk to folks all the time. It's laura at myhelena.com and soon enough, we'll have a new website up and running and you can sign up for a newsletter. So watch out for us there, helena.com, LinkedIn, Twitter, and keep abreast of what's going on because we will have ah, some exciting that news. <laughs> yeah, that was a pun. We have some exciting news <laughs> coming in the new year. So if okay. you follow us, you'll, you'll hear about that. Great. And that probably coincides. I think we'll probably run, we'll be airing this right around, you know, January, mid-January or so. So 
Great. Well, congratulations again, Laura. It's absolutely incredible what you're doing. And um, I wish you the best of luck. And thanks so much for chatting today. Thanks so much, Erica. Have a good one. You too. Thanks for listening to All Too Well, guys. And as always, I am accepting stars, reviews, all of the above. They don't cost you anything and they mean a lot to me. So if you do have time, head on over to Apple Podcasts and throw me a few stars and, uh, you know, just do a good turn. Thanks. Thanks.